You know, for the past several months on television, they've been broadcasting back-to-back episodes of the television show called Law and Order. They've called it the Law and Order Marathon, and and, uh, on several nights, the Bly family has been known to get caught up in multiple episodes. The truth is that I have always enjoyed legal drama. The whole process of the court system and the criminal justice system does fascinate me. I find it very interesting at the lengths that both attorneys and prosecutors will go to to influence a jury with their interpretation of the evidence that has been presented. I think the hardest thing for me to watch is watching an attorney try to make their client who is guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt look like some kind of an angel, while at the same time, prosecutors are making backroom deals uh, to avoid an actual public trial, getting the, or offering the, the criminal to plea down to a lesser charge, a lesser offense. Our legal system is definitely very interesting to say the least, and when you watch all the little things that are going on and working together, it truly can be a fascinating thing to observe. Now, if you feel the way that I do about the legal process, then you're going to love this morning's text from our study in the book of John, because John's testimony in the last part of chapter 5 is the record of a trial of sorts that took place during Jesus' earthly ministry, and it involves Jesus, the Son of God, as the defendant and the Pharisees are his prosecutors. Now, if you joined us last week, you'll remember that the fifth chapter of John's gospel is a turning point in Christ's ministry. In fact, go ahead and turn to John chapter 5 so you'll be ready. While you're doing that, let me just say this. John chapter 5 records a, a time in Jesus' ministry where it turned a corner and it, because there came a new phase of opposition towards our Lord, and that opposition continued to build. It was organized opposition from the Jewish religious leaders who were bent on getting rid of Jesus altogether. It was just like John wrote back in the first chapter, verse 11, he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. From now on, this kind of rejection would be commonplace, and it would continue to build until the point of Jesus' crucifixion. You can see the beginnings of this continued attack on Jesus reflected in the tense of the verbs that John uses. And it starts with a part of last week's scripture reference in verse 16. I'll show you what I mean. John 5, 16 says, So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. The verbs used here in John's writing account are in the imperfect tense, which means they are an ongoing action. It starts with Jesus' return to Jerusalem for the feast, but it keeps on going. So please understand, this was not a one-time event. Jesus continually did things that upset the Pharisees, like, in this case, healing someone on the Sabbath. He kept on breaking their man-made rules, their man-made laws, and of course the Pharisees kept on persecuting him for it. It was like Newton's third law of motion that we discussed last week. Jesus kept on gracing people while the Pharisees, the the legalists, if you will, kept opposing him for doing so. And it got to the point that their attacks took on the form of what they call a drumhead trial of sorts. If you've never heard that term, a drumhead trial is is a term used for a court-martial process that the Nazis used on the battlefield in World War II. It was a system that allowed for for speedy trials to be performed because they believed that a fast process would be a far more effective deterrent. So rather than hauling Jesus into a courtroom, These temple officials, at every chance, brought a makeshift courtroom like this, like I was talking about, to Jesus. They assumed the role as the prosecutor, and they hoped 
that the jury of public opinion would side with them. So I want to read together this whole portion of scripture from John chapter 5, verses 16 through 47. I'll be reading from the NIV version. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow on the screen behind us. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved." John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? If you'll look back and go back to verse 18, John reveals to us the crimes that Jesus is being accused of. First, it's the breaking of the Sabbath. It is also Jesus calling God his own father. And thirdly, he has made himself equal with God. And Jesus' response, whenever they, they, they make these charges against him, was basically to say, guilty is charged. 
In fact, he justifies his crime of breaking their Sabbath traditions by saying that he was indeed God in the flesh. In verse 16, he said, my father has, is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Jesus was saying to them, look, I am God's son. I am God become flesh. And as the author of the Sabbath law, I interpret it, not you guys. God is always at work, even on the Sabbath, and as God's son, I am always at work as well. And of course, this is true. The Genesis record tells us that God rested from creation on the seventh day, but his higher works of, of judgment and mercy and compassion and love, they kept on going. Listen, people, if God ever stopped working, if he ever stopped doing what he does, we would cease to exist. So this trial continued as Jesus began his defense in earnest by basically saying, the testimony I am about to give is absolutely true, so help me, me. Because yes, I am God's only begotten son. C.S. Lewis points out that the word begotten demands that Jesus be God. And his reasoning behind this, I quote, we only beget in kind with what we are. Humans beget humans and God begets God. Yes, men and women are said to become God's children, but that is through adoption. Jesus, you will find, is never spoken of of becoming God's son, but rather he has always been God's son. So with these words, he clearly and boldly claims that he is God, that he is God become flesh. Now, liberal theologians say this isn't true, that God never, Jesus never said he was God, but the only way you can really say that is to ignore this part of John's gospel and other texts as well. Let me give you a few. John 1, 1 through 3 says, in the beginning was the word. That references Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was not made. In John 20, 28, Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. In Hebrews 1, 3, it tells us the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I could go on and on, but if anybody ever tells you that the scriptures don't claim that Jesus is God or that Jesus didn't claim he was God, it's not true. You can point them to many of those verses, these and many more. Well, to support his claim to divinity, in his opening arguments, Jesus told the Pharisees that he does things that only God can do. And here's a quick summary of them. In verses 19 through 20, Jesus says he is equal with God. Verse 21, he says that as God, he is the giver of life. In verse 20 and 23, Jesus says he is the final judge. Verse 24, he says that he will determine the eternal destiny of humanity. Verses 25 through 29, Jesus says he will raise the dead. In verse 30, he says he is always doing the will of God. Now, how do you think these Jewish re religious leaders felt when Jesus made all of these bold, brash claims? Well, I personally think they were seething. I think they thought, how dare he? Who does he think he is? In fact, I think there was a miracle going on at this point of this little man-made trial. I believe that Jesus literally held them in place so that they were forced to hear those things he said to them. Otherwise, they would have surely picked up stones and began to attempt to kill him and stone him right there on the spot. I mean, Jesus was clearly and boldly and continually claiming to be God. But after 12 verses in which Christ repeatedly says that he has the authority to do the things that only God can do, he says this in verse 31. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. What does that mean? He's saying, listen up, you guys. If I testify about myself, my testimony is invalid. 
At this point, Jesus, in essence, is not physically, but in essence, he's holding up a law book and reading from it. Because in the Jewish, the Greek, and the Roman law, a person's witness by itself was not considered admissible evidence. As an example, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in verse 31, Jesus is simply bowing to the rabbinical demand for witnesses outside of his own personal testimony. As we just read, their law called for not more than three witnesses. So Jesus goes to beyond that. He proceeds in verses 32 through 47 to cite five witnesses to prove that his words are true. Jesus was going the second mile here. And in verse 32, he literally starts at the top. Because guess who Jesus' first witness was? It was God himself. Jesus' first witness was God. Look at John 5, 22. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. Now, Jesus didn't mention the Father's name here. He did so later in verse 37. But the word that is translated another means another of the same kind. So that's what Jesus was saying. He was saying that God the Father had verified his claim, and this was actually, when you think about it, a brilliant legal maneuver on his part. I like what Chuck Swindoll wrote about this. He said, without denying complete unity or oneness with the Father, Jesus treated the Father's testimony as independent. If his accusers objected, they would have admitted that he and the Father are indeed one being or essence. By failing to object, his accusers had to receive the independent testimony of the Almighty into evidence. Well, I'm sure citing the first witness as being God really ticked off these Pharisees because these guys considered themselves to be, the, to be extremely religious people. And boy, were they. They were God's chosen people. They were proud of that fact. Not only did they know it, but they let everybody else know it as well. But even that wasn't exclusive enough for these Pharisees because all Israelites were God's chosen people. So just being a Jew was way too common for these Jewish religious leaders. In their minds, all of them were uncommon. They were the religious cream of the crop, if you will. They were like what the Marines say, the few, the proud, the Pharisees. They wore their righteousness right out on their sleeve. The clothes they wore told you that they were religious people. The, the way they talked told you how religious they were. The way they ate and who they ate meals with told how religious they were. They, they piously prayed out loud publicly so everybody would know that they were there. Everything they did was religious. And everything religious that they did was done publicly. So everyone could, could observe it and everybody could be amazed by their holiness. So if anyone was in touch with God, it should have been these men. After all, they were the elite among God's people, God's chosen people, and they were very proud of it. But what did Jesus tell them? In essence, he said, God the Father bears witness of me. But there's no way that you guys could know that. You wouldn't know that because you have no idea who God is. You don't know anything about God. You've never heard of him. You certainly have never seen him. You've never seen his form or shape, he tells them. Now this doesn't mean that the proud Pharisees hadn't had the opportunity to hear the Father's voice. Why do I say that? Because as we read, God had spoken audibly about who Jesus was. Do you remember at his baptism? God's voice from heaven in Matthew 3, 17 said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Also at Jesus' transfiguration, God the Father also gave an audible testimony about his son in Matthew 17, 5. It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. But he adds to it, listen to him. On each of these occasions, the father affirmed that, yes, Jesus was his son. The, Ver the Pharisees should have believed. After all, God had said so. Jehovah himself had bore witness that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Listen, if God Almighty opens his mouth and makes a, a proclamation or a declaration, we don't need another witness. It is over. It is settled, amen? So Jesus could have stopped there, but he wanted to respect their legal system, even though this wasn't an official a court going on in a courtroom, and he continued to call witnesses to his defense. So Jesus' second witness was John the Baptist. In verse 23, Jesus said, you have sent to John, and he testified to the truth. But in verse 34, Jesus makes it clear that as God, he did not need to appeal to mere man to bear witness of himself. I mean, John's witness didn't make Jesus the son of God. Jesus, of course, was God's son without John's witness. But Jesus says in verse 34, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. And he continues in verse 35 by saying, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy this light. Jesus was reminding his accusers that until Herod took John's life on some kind of a whim, that the Pharisees had indeed enjoyed John's ministry, along with the rest of Israel. I mean, everyone went out there in the desert to hear John preach. He drew multitudes because he was both entertaining to watch and to hear but also because he represented the restoration of the Old Testament office of prophet. There hadn't been a prophet in Jerusalem or Israel for 400 years. So John the Baptist was extremely popular. There was a time that he was more popular and more famous than Jesus. Every Jew in Israel had heard of John the Baptist. Even the Pharisees had sent emissaries or scouts out to hear John preach. And they would have heard and reported John's celebrity testimony. They would have heard him say of Jesus in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They would have heard him say in John 1.27, He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. They would have heard him proclaim in John 1.34, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. I mean, the Pharisees respected John, and John constantly was pointing people toward Jesus. In John 3.31, he said this, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Then in John 3.34-36, he went on to say, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So by using John the Baptist as a witness for the defense, Jesus was reminding his accusers of how John the Baptist testified that Jesus was in fact God. But before we go any further, there's a beautiful thing here I don't want you to miss. John had faithfully bore witness to Jesus for a long, long time, but now we see Jesus bearing witness to John. I think that is a great example of what Jesus wants to do one day when we stand before our Heavenly Father in glory. He wants to say, Father, this is David. He's a forgiven sinner like the rest of my followers, but he confessed me before men, and now I want to acknowledge him before you. And I'm basing this on Jesus' words found in Matthew chapter 10, 32, where he says this, whoever acknowledges me before others, 
I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. In any case, Jesus was pointing to John. Someone the Pharisees at least begrudgingly respected, saying, listen to him, because he testifies that I am God's son. But you know, even though the Pharisees enjoyed listening to John the Baptist, they obviously did not hear a word he said because they refused to see Jesus as God. And because of this, Jesus called his third witness. And Jesus' third witness was his miracles. Look at verse 36, where Jesus refers to this. He says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. You know, for all the ways that John the Baptist uh, testified of Jesus, he never performed a single miracle, did he? But Jesus did. He did work that only God could do. And he did so as a sign to everyone that he was God in the flesh. And at least one of the Pharisees, if you will recall, responded to these signs and these wonders. Do you remember Nicodemus' works, words? He came and met Jesus at nighttime in dark where no one saw him. He said in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus he had sound reasoning. He understood that Jesus' ability to do what he did meant that God endorsed him. And that kind of reasoning is why what Jesus is appealing to these other religious leaders with. He was saying, if you won't believe my words, then believe my works. My works ought to be enough to prove to you that I have been sent by my Father God. In John 10, 37, Jesus used the same platform saying, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Here's another thing. When John was in prison, he began to wonder if he had been mistaken. And he sent some of his men to Jesus. He wanted to find out for sure if Jesus was the Messiah as he said he was or if he should wait for another. What did Jesus say to them? In Matthew eleven four through 6, he said, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, tell John about the works that I am doing, works that only God could do. The late Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, called attention to several obvious facts about Jesus' miracles. I wanna share them with you. He talked about their number, that they were not few, but they were many. He talked about their greatness, that they were not little, but they were mighty. Their publicity, they were not done in a corner, but generally they were done op open before many witnesses and often even before his enemies. He spoke of their character. They were works of love and of mercy and of compassion. They were helpful. They were beneficial to mankind. He also said they were visible. They would stand examination. They were not staged. They happened in the normal course of his ministry. There was nothing prearranged about his miracles at all. And he also spoke of their efficacy. Christ's cures were perfect and complete, and people who were healed were fully healed. But remember, Jesus did not do miracles to attract a crowd. He didn't even do miracles primarily to meet people's physical needs. Jesus did miracles to bear witness to the fact that he was and is God. And you know, you would think that all of the healing and the blind and the lame and being raised from the dead, that all of his miracles would be enough, wouldn't you? But Jesus didn't stop there. And he provides another witness. And Jesus' fourth witness was the scriptures. Look back at verse 39 and 40. Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently 
because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, as Jesus infers here, if anyone knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, it would be these guys. After all, they were experts in the law of God. They knew every jot and tittle. They knew every single commandment. They knew it so well, they could spot a sinner a mile away. The problem is they couldn't recognize the sinner that was reflected in the mirror at them every morning when they shaved. You see, they, they read the scriptures in order to apply it to other people's lives. They use God's written word as a whip and not what is supposed to be as a mirror. They loved to be critical and criticize other people, but they were blind to their own shortcomings. Even worse, these guys thought if they could just, they, they could just follow the law to the T, that they would have eternal life. It's like I said before, the law never saved anybody. I mean, they thought that they could be righteous enough to, to, to gain godliness or earn godliness. What I'm trying to say is they may have known a lot of things about the Bible, but they didn't know much about the God of the Bible. They knew him with their head. They knew him intellectually. They did not know him with their heart. He did not know, they did not know him personally or intimately. If they had known the God of the Bible, they would have known the one who was standing right in front of them because from cover to cover, the Bible does nothing but testify to Jesus. As someone put it once, cut the scriptures anywhere and they bleed with the blood of the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The Pharisees studied the scriptures day after day Week after week, they had devoted themselves to these writings, copying and, and even preserving them. They contained nine centuries of full messianic prophecy, which Jesus had precisely fulfilled. How in the world could they not see who Jesus was? I'm reminded of an interview I once saw of the late atheist Stephen Hawking in which he was promoting one of his books. It was a book in which Hawking said that science proves that the universe began from nothing. And when I heard that, I thought, well, maybe he's going to go into intelligent design. Maybe this genius has kind of maybe figured it out. But then Hawking said that the law of physics make a creator God unnecessary. And I thought to myself, how could somebody who is so smart be so dumb? How could you see the universe beginning from nothing and not deduce that something or someone must have started that incredible creative process? I mean, even I know that nothing comes from nothing unless there's an outside force of some kind. How can you understand the amazingly intricate laws of physics and not conclude that there has to be a law writer, right? Someone who wrote these laws of physics and who programmed them into the operations of this world and this universe. I love Romans 1, 20 through 22. It says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools." You know, it was very easy to respect Hawking for the brave way that he publicly responded to his physical handicap. But I never respected him for the way that he used his amazing mind that God had obviously given him. What I mean is in spite of his great intellect, he was a fool. And the reason he was a fool is because the Bible says in his heart there was no God. And anyone who believes in their heart that there is no God, the scriptures say, is a fool. And these 
Pharisees were just as foolish. They were just as blind. Listen, friends, when you, when you boil it all down, when you rightly divide the word of truth, the Bible always points to one thing. The Bible always and only points to Jesus. You cannot miss it. So thus far in his defense, Jesus is called for witness. He's, he's called God. He's called John the Baptist. He's spoken of his miracles. He's spoken of the scriptures. But when you remember who his opponents were, I am sure that you'll agree his last witness was truly brilliant because Jesus' fifth and final witness was Moses. Listen to what he says in verse 45 through 47. I love this. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe that what he wrote... How are you going to believe what I say? In these verses, Jesus affirmed the fact that, the inspired, that inspired by God's Spirit, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, what is known as the Torah. The Pharisees know this, of course. So Moses was their hero. Jesus says, in essence, you call yourselves disciples of Moses. You trust in the teaching of Moses. You exalt the Torah. You say you believe in it, but you really don't. Because Moses was writing about me. And he was. Moses wrote Genesis 3.15, where God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That offspring was Jesus because he was the only offspring ever born of a woman. The only person born of a virgin. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 19, through Moses, God also wrote this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. Peter quoted this text from Deuteronomy in Acts chapter 3 as he was speaking about Jesus in the temple. He was reminding some of the Pharisees that the Jesus whom they had crucified was Christ. Other people in their day found Jesus through the Mosaic books, but these Jewish rulers did not. And on that basis, Jesus accuses them of not even believing Moses or else they would have believed in him. And you know what's interesting is John does not record any kind of an answer that these Pharisees gave to Jesus' words. In all probability, there were none, because I am certain that they were so ticked off they couldn't even speak. I imagine that at that exact moment, they gave up that drumhead trial and they walked away. I mean, what else do you do when you, are th when you think you are more important than the God that you serve? And furthermore, who is standing right before your very eyes, and you refuse to recognize him. Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this down? Well, as I mentioned, Jesus called five witnesses. But really, he's called six. And of course, I'm referring to you. I want you to think about this for a moment. What if Jesus' trial was being held here today? If Jesus were on trial in Red Bluff, on the stairs of the old courthouse building, and thousands upon thousands of our fellow citizens were present, he was publicly being put on trial for claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And if you were called to give a testimony on his behalf, what would you say? What has Jesus done in your life that proves he is who he claims to be? Because there is a sense that this trial goes on every day of our existence. It's when we bear witness of who Jesus is to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our family members, to all of those who don't know him the way that we do. So with that in mind, I'd like to ask this question. 
If you were on the stand testifying on behalf of Christ, what would you say about him that you know to be true down to the center of your very being? Maybe you know him as your healer. He healed your body in some kind of a miraculous way. Maybe you know him as your deliverer. He delivered you from some kind of an addiction or a stronghold that you never thought you could, you could break free from. Maybe you know him as a prayer answerer. He has answered many on your behalf. Maybe he's your strength. He infuses you with the ability to, to do things and accomplish things that you never, ever thought you could do on your own. Maybe he's your best friend. He's that friend, as the scriptures say, that stick closer than a brother. Perhaps you know him to be your provider because he has blessed you by fulfilling many of your needs throughout your lifetime. Whatever it is that you think of the most when you testify about Christ Jesus, there is one that is universal. He is my savior. He is my salvation. Can you say that about him this morning? If not, he can become your savior today. I'd like to ask you all to stand to your feet if you would. I want to open this altar this morning for several reasons. First and foremost, for anyone in this place who like the Pharisees in this story, you've completely overlooked Christ. You've You've denied his existence, or should I say you've denied that, that he is God, that he can save you. You've denied the fact that he wants to have a personal relationship with you. Today, in these scriptures that I've read to you, Jesus offered a great defense against his accusers by showing them that he was, in fact, and is, in fact, the Son of God. My hope is that if you've had any doubt, this testimony that you've heard today will convince you. So if it is your desire to be in a relationship with him this morning and receive salvation, you can do so. The Bible says in order to receive salvation, you must believe, you must confess, you must believe that Jesus is the only son of God, that he is the only way to God the Father. And through the forgiveness of sin, you can be made whole. You confess that in a prayer to him. You just say those words, Jesus, I believe you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. When you do that, Jesus will save you. The Bible says he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The Bible says you will become a new creation. You'll begin to live a new kind of a life with him being the pinnacle of your life, being your Lord and Savior, offering you direction, offering you wisdom, offering you strength to live this life that we call the Christian journey. And I want to give you the opportunity to come down here and meet with him. Secondly, I want to open this altar to anyone who who has a need. You have a problem. You have a sickness. You're dealing with some kind of a battle and you need God to show himself true to you throughout this battle. I want to give you an opportunity to come down here and to meet with him and lay your burden, your battle, your sickness, whatever it is, at his feet and ask him for the strength as you navigate yourself through this, or should I say, allow him to navigate you through this. As I mentioned, all of those titles that we have of Jesus, if you come down here with a problem, it gives you the opportunity to watch as he becomes your deliverer, as he becomes your healer, as he becomes your provider, as he becomes your strength, as he becomes your prayer answerer. We go through so much in this world alone. Self-sufficiency kicks in. And we think, oh, I can handle this. I can do this on my own. When Jesus wants you to cry out to him and allow him to walk with you through whatever it is that you're going through. And thirdly, I would like to open this altar to anyone who simply wants to thank Jesus for who he is and what he's done for you in your life. You know, sometimes we lose sight of that. We realize we're Christians. We realize we're saved by the blood of the lamb. We realize we have an eternal destiny in God's presence, but we forget sometimes about the journey. We forget about the many things that he has brought us through. 
And I believe that when you come forward and you give him praise and you give him honor and you give him glory for the things that he's done in your life, he will ignite that back in you once again. And you will walk out of here today being more energized than you ever were before. You need to constantly remind yourself. It's so easy to forget. But God wishes that we would remember his goodness and we would give him thanks for it. So while the worship team sings, I want to open this altar to anybody who wants to come down and pray. I'll pray over you. So will Pastor Chris and Anthony. I think Anthony's with the, um, the junior hires right now. Let's spend some time in prayer seeking God at the altar, and then we will close this service in prayer. altar continues to pray let's go to the Lord in prayer and close out our service you can stay here and pray as long as you want father we thank you for your word thank you that your word is full of truth that identifies who Jesus is that he is our Lord that he is our Savior there's no question about that and we thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you that he's offered us salvation and freedom from sin and from death in the grave. 
Father, I pray that anyone in this place or watching online who has not come forward, who has not prayed the prayer of salvation, that they would have the courage to do so today, that they would invite you in. They would take down that wall that has separated them from you and say, Jesus, I believe in who you are. I receive you as Lord and Savior today. Cleanse me and forgive me of my sin. And Father, you are faithful and you are just to cleanse them, to give them a new life, and we thank you for that. It is as simple as that, putting our faith and our trust in you. And I thank you, Lord. Father, I just ask that as a people, we would always be reminded of our testimony about you, that we would always be ready that if we had to testify on your behalf, Father, we would know what we would say and how we would say it. Of course, we know when that time comes, Lord, you give us the words to speak. But nonetheless, we should be ready. We should be able to give a testimony to who you are, what you've done in our life, and why it is that we serve you and live our life for you. So, Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing us. Places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, let them be words that build up and not tear down. I ask that we would be bright lights in a very dark world, that we would shine forth your love and your goodness to others in a way that they would open the door and come to us and say, what is it that's different about you? And then we could share your goodness with them. I pray, Father, that you keep us safe until we gather together next week. Keep us safe from sickness, disease. I ask also that you would keep us safe from accidents that might befall us. Anything that would prevent us from gathering together as a church family and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you that you are always with us. Doesn't matter what's going on in this world. Doesn't matter what's going on in our nation, Lord. You are ultimately in control. We are fully aware that you have a plan for how this is all coming down to an end. And Father, I believe that's coming soon. And so I pray in the name of Jesus, as a body of believers, that we would everyone be ready for that moment. That we would give our lives and dedicate our lives and hearts to you and the furthering of your kingdom. So Father, until we gather again, keep us safe. Keep us reminded of your goodness. And keep our mouths open to share the goodness that you have given to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.